0: He's going to be with us for two episodes. In this first episode, we're going to talk about his work in ministry, unpack some ideas surrounding anti-racism and spiritual practices and ethics. Then we'll dive into more of a conversation on politics and, and decolonizing the faith, part two is a fantastic conversation where we just get the dialogue moving and talk about decolonizing and decolonizing the church. So stick around for both episodes. They're exceptional. Thank you, Robert, for joining us and his book. Well, we're going to talk about that in the first part as well. The audio is a little bit messed up for the first couple of minutes here, but uh, then I sorted out. So stay tuned let's jump right in big pleasure to invite my new friend robert monson welcome friend to the podcast
1: thank you thank you thank you i'm happy to be
0: here thank you uh you wear a ton of different hats <laughs> a man of many vocations can 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 i say that yeah voc- a lot of artists are like that hey eh? would you <laughs> consider yourself but like would you say that yeah, i'm an artist yes I would
1: at this juncture in my life, I would. Uh Uh, So not not always. No, not
0: even close. So what has shifted for you to first tell us what all the artistic pieces are that make you whole?
1: Yeah. I, well, I am a writer. I'm a musician. I'm an advocate. Uh, And to me, that's artistry. and um yeah, so writing, music, advocacy, those are kind of the, the things that I dance with. Um I also, you know, uh I also do a podcast and there's an art form with podcasting. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so yeah, so those are the kind of main things that would would make up the the the
0: artistic portion of me. Today we're going to talk about uh, your latest book. I want to get into that. We're going to chat a little bit about about you, get an intro about you, and then uh, we're going to see where this bus takes us. But uh, we are chatting off air about our our shared interests, which is kind of this emerging hope that a lot of uh, artists and leaders have around decolonizing the Christian faith or decolonizing uh, culture, so hopefully we get into that. But first off, I mean, take us back as far as you want to take us. But uh, give us a, a little bit of an intro because you're in Denver, Colorado right now. Um, but you haven't been there since the beginning of time. <laughs> I'm not that old. I mean, I look young, though. You I look, you look <laughs> younger than me. <laughs> <laughs> <You're
1: looking laughs> young and fresh. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I am originally from Chicago. And one of seven children growing up there. And uh, that was an interesting childhood, to say the least. (laughs) Um, And that would be a whole podcast uh, to divulge things about my uh, childhood. Mm. But uh, being in Chicago shaped me, my way of thinking, my way of being, my way of understanding the world. And from there, I have lived in multiple places uh, within America, and even uh, most notably, I lived in Tokyo, Japan, on numerous occasions and um, teaching uh, there and so I have been all over and my latest <laughs> uh, act has brought me here to Denver colorado and uh, so i 've been here for uh, almost four years, probably so yeah.
0: One of the questions that uh, society, culturally, we always ask ourselves, but uh, this is merely merely uh, scratching the surface, is a, the question of what do you do? Um, I know you have a hand leading uh, a ministry right now, and so tell the listeners a little bit about the story of, of uh, it's campus related, isn't it?
1: Yes. So, uh, I help lead, um, it's a nonprofit, um, that has ministerial ties, but it's not in and of itself a ministry, but, uh, so the, the nonprofit is called subculture Inc. I helped to start it with, uh, the CEO and founder, uh, Spencer. And, uh, so I've known her for a number of years and essentially from, uh, Doing campus ministry for a number of years um, in a lot of different contexts, we saw that there were a huge gap in reaching minorities in general, but especially Black students. And so we found that the way that we ministered to our white students and our Asian students, et cetera, had had to be profoundly different than uh, how we reached our Black students, the types of questions that our black students would ask, um, mostly related to theodicy and they had a lot of practical barriers in front of them that the, the rest of uh, our students did not have. And so uh, a $50 uh, bill could take out a black student from graduating, whereas we didn't find near that type of, um, Barrier for our white students, Asian students, whatever. Um, And so so that was on the financial side. And then on the spiritual side, we found we weren't able to answer the questions that the practical um, grounding theology questions that black students have. We didn't have uh, people to point them to um, theologically um, because a lot of the people that shaped a lot of our material were white men. Not a lot, that was all that we were <laughs> giving them. So so we dreamed, uh, so Tamise had this in her heart and then I helped uh, to put some infrastructure to it. And this nonprofit was born as a way to remove barriers from black college students. So we do give finances, we do help shape content. I am mostly in the content division and oversee people there. And so we do podcasts, articles, um, et cetera, uh, that reimagines um, theology, uh, but that is relevant to people in the margins. Um, so a lot of our stuff centers blackness, but we have a lot of listeners from all over that are not even college students that, <laughs> um, like our stuff. So that's been, that's been an interesting ride. Um, a lot of people listen to us for the anti-racist component of our podcast and, um, and our articles, um, and they're not even in college so <laughs> so yeah, so I help oversee um, some things within that nonprofit and so we help resource uh, campus ministries uh, we help uh, we give them finances, we give them resources, we give them downloads, um, et cetera
0: so when I hear this story and 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 I completely understand it, uh you're filling a gap yes. The question, of course, where's the church in all this? How much time do we have? No, I, no, I, I
1: yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, how have they missed the mark? Um, I Okay, preface, I can be extremely iconoclastic, and there are not a lot of things that are sacred to me. Especially,
0: <laughs> good. it's not a sacred podcast man okay just awesome. bring that because that's just me <laughs> um
1: also so even within the church there are not a lot of things that are sacred to me mm-hmm. um and it helps that i grew up as an atheist so um mm-hmm. so i preface that to say how how why is there this gap i think for the same reason that there was a gap with uh some of the widows that were being served in acts um Mm. what the Hellenistic widows and uh, Mm. others others were. And so I think anytime there are people that have a place of privilege, there are blind spots where others are not getting served. And so what what you saw there in Acts, I think maybe chapter seven, but don't quote me, there was this gap where a system had to be instituted to make sure that all the widows were getting served equally. Because clearly these were, you know, these other widows were they were being missed and they weren't being taken care of. Similarly in our day, because so much work is built towards centering white people and whiteness and a theology that is disembodied that focuses on the spirit and not, um, the flesh, then you have spiritual things that center white men. Right. And so So yeah, it's not surprising then to me that you could be on campus and invite people to a Bible study, but not realize, hey, these brothers got (laughs) to eat. And so so I I wish that we didn't have to exist uh, personally, um, because churches were doing work that was more holistic. And before you add me, I know there are awesome churches that are doing it, (laughs) but let's be clear that if the overwhelming testimony was that churches were taking care of these Black students, we wouldn't need to be here.
0: I love your callback all the way to the start. (laughs) Uh, why i mean we've been having this problem since the beginning in yeah. this acts church and 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 how the apostles responded to those widows as you are sharing about the the centering of of the dominant voice was who they put in charge of of taking over the distribution of wealth and food yes. w- were the hellenistic <laughs> jews yeah. so they centered the minorities to do it for everyone mm-hmm. as a total subversive DNA piece of that early church. Yes, yes. precisely. I, I was just going to say it was, it was also indicative, as, as you were sharing, of how, and you don't necessarily process this, how uni- campuses are, and the ministries that serve campuses, are centered very much through a specific lens, mm. a dominant like like who has created this content in the past and has served and led and and so forth historically mm. um, I've never processed it through through that lens, but of course, like who's been the dominant voice creating those those pieces, those ministries the mm. content and
1: yeah, no, I love that i, I and i th- I think it's all throughout the Bible right we i mean you you see where there isn't an approach to center others. Um, You find there's a gap there. You know, like in Genesis 16, you see uh, Hagar being overlooked, even though she was mistreated in a system that did not serve her and her body was used, right? And so you fast forward to Genesis 21, she's still being overlooked (laughs) to the point God has to show up to her twice and give her promises um, that resemble the promises that he gave to Abraham, mm-hmm. but still to this day, Hagar's story is still not told. And so, which is interesting to me, and I have hypotheses about that. But um, <laughs> she's a forgotten person, uh, which is interesting to me because she's one of the she's the first person to name God.
0: <laughs> um, um, profound encounter she yeah, has, yeah, with God, face to face, like. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, so I agree with And you. we decenter her, her voice, her story, her name. Mm. Yeah. Uh, we have a whole narrative of her people. Yeah. You know, like, oh, boy. Yeah. We could go all the way down that road. Yeah. Um, so I, this is not my co- uh, context here, so I'll ask it for um, all the listeners asking it. I'll ask it for myself. Um where's the black church or ethnic churches in the mix of these types of ministries? Uh, There are certainly HBU's, black universities. And, um, is there not a connection point between church and, uh, some of their, their ethnic, um, parishioners or congregations or students? Mm -hmm. I love, I love that you brought that up.
1: I would say, uh, There have been, um, uh, there is a connection there. Um, I don't want to be overly idealistic about even the black church, but I will say that for many students who go to predominantly white institutions or HBCUs, uh, regardless, there are, I see so many testimonies of people from their home church, you know, grandmas and aunties in the faith slipping them $20 every time they come back or um, mm-hmm. trying take, to take care of these like basic needs. Right. Um, and I see that I've witnessed that. It's, it's profoundly beautiful to me um, um, that familial connection. Mm-hmm. I will also say that the context that uh, birth, the black church um, has, from its inception made it uh, have to fight wars on a lot of different sides. I'll say it that way. So what produced the black church, the endurance, the beauty, the worship styles um, also necessitated that it would be involved in fighting for black survival in America. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And out of black, Churches, believers, civil rights movement was birthed, all different things, right? And so the very inception of a Black faith necessitated that a fight for physical, actual survival um, and being able to take care of one another um, physically, practically, spiritually, emotionally. And time will tell if they've done all of those areas well. But I would say with having to fight on every side, I, I don't. I think it's so hard then for them to to have like, they have a campus ministry division, you know, Um, as well. It's like, man, what do you want from me? (laughs) Like, We're trying to like make sure black people don't die in the streets. We're trying to feed the people. We're trying to combat white supremacy. Like, you know, we're doing, you know, we, if we could get a helping hand, (laughs) we could, Uh you know, because they often get blasted uh, for not being more involved in, missionary work as well, yeah. um, abroad. And my pushback on that is um, one, knowing the history of the missions movement and the races, racism and uh, the missions movement uh, helps you not get that critique. Two, um, when you're trying to fight for survival at home, mm-hmm. getting on a plane and being in Hawaii, telling <laughs> Hawaiians about, Christ is like probably not highest on the list.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, we just don't really have that that colonizer blood in our veins, but but uh, maybe that's uh, um that that doesn't explain everything. Yeah, truly, it brings up the reality that many of these mi- these ministries, and you think of campus ministry, and you also think about um, international work. Yes. That's work of privilege. Yes, Mm. that's the work of you. Got to have a level of privilege underneath you to afford you the the time, the money, the training, the support to accomplish some of these things. Yeah,
1: yeah, and it does. And we want to stand. We want to be able to have something that is in that gap because you're right. It is a privilege. And it's a privilege for Black students to even go to college. Mm -hmm. Um, I hate that it's still a privilege. Um, I hate that. Um, And so when these students hit campus, you know, how much can their churches support them? There are some churches doing awesome work in this regard, but... There's too many battles to wage, and um, so hopefully, through our work, we can help like lighten the load some, yeah. um, but even ourselves we we don't have all the answers. we don't have unlimited resources. We would love to yeah. be able to give finances to every person that asks every time, but that is not a reality currently. Um, yeah, so
0: we're gonna to put to all of the info. Um, in the show notes, mm-hmm. one of the uh, pieces now as we switch, switch gears in terms of content, um, the content that you have produced here um, is your devotional. And I remember seeing it, did it come out uh, spring, summer this year?
1: It came out, yeah, kind of late fall, um, it, came, it came out. Uh, I've been working on it for a bit, but yeah. Yeah.
0: When I saw this book, there are not a lot of books out there that are covering both anti-racism and also subversively, ironically, pun intended, or ironically, Ta-da. pun intended. Yes, it's not a pun. Yeah, help me with the words. Anyways, um, also a devotion that is actively but subversively decolonizing. Mm the faith as well. Subversive stillness, an anti-racist devotional for the everyday believer. How long were you working on this? I know from one writer to another, it's like, well, when this first started, six years ago. You know, 15 years ago when I got the vision. No, I, um, <laughs> I think
1: it actually, in actuality, came together in a short amount of time, surprisingly. Um, I first had the idea on a run in february uh march of this year yes of this year and uh i think a lot when i run
0: <laughs> yeah i'm just saying that's like the start of the the preview have you had a little movie preview of this it, book it, yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, it starts with like the the setting sun yeah <laughs> robbie's running yes and i was and running then, like
1: uh, a gazelle no um <laughs> i was not at all and uh
0: some light saxophone yeah exactly uh, (laughs) I was feeling it it
1: was beautiful (laughs) i um so i had this thought around february march and um kind of pushed it to the side and really started on thinking through it um towards the end of march and april And just started, just kind of jumped in. And that's kind of how I am. (laughs) And uh, so, yeah, so, um, so really it came together. Actual sitting down came together within um, two months.
0: That's props man because writers as, as writers know but the production of of written material can happen fast if you have a lot of the power as as the author to produce and publish but if you have it in someone else's hands that is so hard to do to turn yes. around a project and a project of of this quality uh, that fast so props that's crazy man (laughs) thanks and then it it helps
1: that um subculture had all of their resources within it to help that turnaround be that uh so so we have a graphic designer on staff um we have published print material before uh from within ourselves so um we've learned a lot uh, good and bad from that process so so then it helped uh that we had a number of the resources with editing with designing and um and I didn't want to have to jump through hoops of somebody else's hoops um to put yeah. my work out there uh yeah i just want whatever i want out there <laughs> so, yeah
0: yeah yeah yeah, I feel that. Yeah, I feel that. You you started to put this together, and the idea came prior to May 2020. Yeah, what was the catalyst? Because, cause, let's be frank, anti-racist stuff right now is hot. <laughs> like it's hot. You know what I'm saying? But you you were putting together like this. These ideas came obviously on the heels of, and, if, and you're an activist, and and you're you're in this. This is your voice. This is your call, right? Yeah. Um, but this was not a production, this is not like a John Hagee or a Rick Warren yeah. just, you know, or an NT Wright when the pandemic hit and somehow they're they're pumping out books on pandemics months later. You're like, like wow. <laughs> <no>. <laughs> How would y'all do that? <laughs> you write fast. Yeah. You also have a team of writers behind. True, it. true, true. <laughs> yeah. This is a product that came out just prior to that, to that inbreaking.
1: Yeah. I I would say for me, kind of the catalyst uh, for me uh, i 'm deeply contemplative uh, i 'm deeply um, prayerful um, and that kind of fuels a lot of my actions, activism, thoughts, what I say, and what i don 't say mm-hmm. um, <laughs> um, and so for me, I have been noticing for a while anti racism had been really popular yeah um, but i was I was finding elements missing right so there, so there 's these strands within anti racist work or even deconstruction work i know that 's a term that 's out there um, and from I have lots of thoughts on both movements, both anti racism and deconstruction. But what I would say as a flaw with both that i ha- I have found was there wasn't a lot of talk uh either there wasn't a lot of talk of how to ground things in spiritual ethics and practices yeah. so mm-hmm. either we're busting everything up which again i'm a kind of classic, so i'm cool with the busting yeah.
0: Um,
1: yeah. <laughs> but we're not necessarily giving a vision for rebuilding uh huh yeah and yeah. uh i think that that is vital in the work both of deconstruction and anti-racist work yes, yes or we're doing work that centers white people. Um, Mm. And so we're talking about things through the lens of whiteness and white America, white, you know, white thoughts, white conservative thoughts. And that isn't all beloved. Like that's not, uh, Uh to me, I think if we, we, you know, so there's these books that are popular, even the anti-racist work that don't necessarily have any spiritual dimension, but they are good. They're informative. They're, um, no. and, um, but I, I found they were either informative in, in helping white people or they were, um, actually that's pretty much it actually right now, yeah, or yeah, they yeah, or yeah. there, or there uh, were black people writing on it. Um, that weren't necessarily trying to inform white people. They're just like, "Hey, this sucks," and I'm also cool with that too. <laughs> it's incomplete.
0: Yeah. I think you have a more holistic approach, and, and it's so funny that you point out those two pieces because as I think about, about what are the most popular books right now, uh, this, I'll use a Canadian context. But the most popular books in the Canadian context um, surrounding the theme of anti-racism, it would be uh, Candy.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Right. And and so there's your black voice, um, and then and then uh, what, what's the uh, Robin DiAngelo's book, Whiteness something? White Dying fragility. White fragility. White yeah. fragility. And and that's the centering the white narrative example. Yeah. <laughs> right there. The two top examples. <laughs>
1: the two top examples. <laughs> exactly and, what you said. And I feel like I wanted something that, you know, I searched for it originally. Uh, is there something uh-huh. that can ground this ethic? into yeah. everyday life because yes. I feel what is missing and, and this is no knock to any of those authors, it's after we read white fragility, how does that person incorporate that into a lifestyle and ethic sure. of anti-racism? Sure.
0: Uh-huh. When
1: we read Kendi and he has astute observations, how do how does one make this a life ethic? Or or what I what I typically see is people go from book to book to book and they're well versed in all of the top anti racist Mm -hmm, books. mm -hmm. But then I look at their life and
0: I Yeah. Where's your embodied activity surrounding the things? You're you're
1: still racist, bro. (laughs) You still (laughs) don't listen when black people talk. You still talk over black people. You still Uh center whiteness. You still don't give money. So then but great, but you your library is lit. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh shucks. Oh, there's a lot of white folks there that. Ugh. Um. Oh, the right. There's no video. It's just did, like the hairs standing on the back of your neck. Yeah. Um. Well, let's talk about this book here because yeah. when I saw it come out, it's for those exact—that's the selling point right there, Robert. Man. <laughs> the, the, the selling point that—not the whiteness part, man. No, no. The, is that you're filling a gap here in terms of the embodied, the activity, the actions. Where do you, what are you going to do in response to the things that you're learning? Mm-hmm. And for a, not not all, but for many uh, marginalized people, Christians of color. Um, you have that vein of activity or action. You know what it means to fight for survival, for your voice. You know th- Those pieces are there. But to articulate it in such a way, your devotional as a 30-day devotional. Um, and, and I value your approach here. And as you're sharing your approach in writing... I could hear that contemplative spirit wow. and approach, like your process. I, I I could feel that through the words yeah. in these pages. And so for the, that I'm I'm thankful for yeah. you, bro, on that. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate um, that. These are every devotional that I and devotionals are hot too. It's like anti-racism <laughs> and devotional, like <laughs> double hotness. Uh, The every devotion I read, though, um, I'm like, that's 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 too long, you can't do it in 30 days. Like, you can't now. That might have been the approach of, of the commitment to the spiritual exercise, yeah, here. But, um, there is so much to use the term meat to chew on here that you have to, and maybe I'm just slow. (laughs) <laughs> but you have to just sit with some of the truths and the calls to actions that mm-hmm. you have and and dwell in the moment and the moments and the time to process this through your body.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Um, uh, 30 days, four... I love how you laid this out in your themes. I'm just looking at the uh, table of contents here. Each... each um, Four weeks, yeah, four themes, um, each day had a simple idea yeah to pull out each day has an an action item too yeah. as well mm-hmm. um, this is damn near genius <laughs> <laughs> t- tell me about the uh, the the layers and the elements that you have placed in each day here,
1: yeah, so. Um, let me read this sentence and answer your question. So I, I wrote, uh, in the closing, I said, this project was crafted in a way that would integrate your spirit soul and body to create a life that incorporates, uh, anti-racism. And so for me, I, I hate devotionals. If I'm honest, I, I am not a fan The 365 days and, uh, To me, you know, so typically in a devotional, sorry if everyone who loves devotionals,
0: bless y'all. I think everyone's looking for fresh devotionals, actually. (laughs) I think that's what it is.
1: And like there are 365 days and typically there's a scripture. You think upon it in your heart really quick. What does it mean to you? I'm going to tell you what it means to you now pray this prayer (laughs) with me, you know? And that's literally every devotional ever, right? And um, Uh it it just depends on how you approach that, you know? So here's a scripture. I'm going to tell you what it means. Think in your heart. Now do, you know, like now pray this prayer so that truth can become evident. So for me, when I created this, there's a couple layers. For me, I um, centered the margins, so um, I wanted to uh, quote people that you would not find in devotionals. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so hence, you have Tupac Shakur, who's uh, <laughs> uh, in here. Um, different Mal- about, yeah. Malcolm X is in here. Um, uh-huh. That's typically not a, a hero of the faith. Uh-huh. Um, in different ones, there are different indigenous authors that I, I was intentional about quoting, etc. cetera. Uh, I intentionally quoted, quoted a lot of women. And so from there, I wanted, so instead of there being a psalm, typically, right, that you think about, think in your heart, I wanted to give um, thoughts and quotes from human beings or songs Mm -hmm. Um, and they might not necessarily be Christian songs, but it, the thought was can you see the beauty of God in this um, offering that I'm giving to you on this day? And Mm -hmm. um, each week has a theme, but each day I give you something different. There may be a Psalm in there, but just, there may be a Psalm and then there might be a quote from a movie. Um, And can you Can you see the nuggets within this movie? Can you see the beauty of God? Can you see what this reflects about the given theme um, related to anti-racism? So I tried to cake all of these things in there because I wanted that part of having an ethic of anti-racism is being able to interact with people on the margins in ways that you see the dignity and the beauty within. So from the quotes that I'm making you wrestle with to the prompts that I'm making you do to even some of them, I'm asking you to look up bloody history, which that doesn't happen in devotionals. It's like usually like I get my five minutes, "Mm, Jesus loves me. No, okay, Mm -hmm. this week, you're studying atrocities related to indigenous people. And I want you to sit with that. Mm -hmm. And I don't want you to run away. I don't want you to, oh my, <laughs> no, the, you're going to sit with that or you're going to do this about that. And I'm hoping that people will be able to do this throughout the year and have different focus points for themselves. You know, that that was the biggest reason why I layered things in this kind of almost like <laughs> um, blanket in this web to force people into uncomfortability.
0: The target reader that you picture in your mind for this book who is that
1: it's interesting originally i thought uh white people as i wrote and as i constructed things my vision expanded because i realized that i was not being anti-racist by having that as my target audience because Mm. i realized if i'm going to center whiteness even if how i approach this yeah I'm literally doing the opposite of what I'm asking them. <laughs> So I'm like, no, 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 that's off the table. I have a multicolored lens when I'm creating this content. Yeah. And my hopes are that um, I wrote it in a way, hopefully that, w- that whether your different ethnic group, different age groups would be able to engage with this that was that's my hope time will tell if that's the truth but I didn't write it to line my own pockets because I did it through subculture right so I could have sold it to someone else but I wanted a lot of different people to see this interact with this and the proceeds of this are benefiting the work that I do currently right so so
0: yeah uh, you'll you'll have to get a white woman on Twitter with a lot of followers to uh, retweet this out to then bestseller. Yeah, hallelujah. It. Uh, but don't, don't tell her don't tell that you didn't center the white voice in it. Yeah. Maybe that's going to go for you, right? Hallelujah. <laughs> Any day now. <laughs> Any day. That's a real thing, though, right? Truly. There's a lot of white women on Twitter, uh, Christian women, who have used their platforms to, uh, to lift up writers of color. Yes, yes.
1: And I see that. Um, Beth Moore is the an example that I've seen uh in present day who really does a lot of work in lifting up uh people of color in their voices. So I see that often.
0: Who is um uh who's the I mean there's a lot, of course there's a lot. Um big big voice, uh uh they had a TV show. Uh Jen Hatmaker Yes, yes was yes. big behind um yes. Austin Brown.
1: Yeah. Yes, um, which is amazing, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, gonna end off right there with the first part of a two part series with Robert Monson. We're going to dive in and continue this conversation about decolonizing the church, and there's some really cool ideas and pictures of a hope to come when it comes to community and reimagining what community can look like in this age to come so stick around